You know, there are a lot of terrorist campaigns around the world, including in places that most of us couldn't find on a map. Hi, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Russell, Ontario, Canada. And you're listening to Canadian Intelligence 8, podcasts about national security and public safety. In October of 2020, I had a guest on my podcast named Jasmine Opperman, and she and I talked about the situation in Mozambique, which is a nation, it's a former Portuguese colony on the Indian Ocean in southeastern Africa. Not a country that most people really know a lot about. If you know anything, they probably knew about the civil war that took place in the 70s and 80s after the Portuguese, after Mozambique got their own independence. But one thing which has been boiling sort of over for the past, I'd say, four to five years, since about 2017, is an actual jihadi campaign carried out in a northeastern province called Cabo Delgado by a group that calls itself, amongst other names, Al-Shabaab. Now, you may be familiar with Al-Shabaab in Somalia. I've talked about Al-Shabaab ad nauseum. This is a different Al-Shabaab. The Al-Shabaab in Somalia has links to Al-Qaeda. This Al-Shabaab apparently has links to Islamic State Central African province. And the situation has not been getting any better of late. And so what I've decided to do is bring in a new voice to talk about this particular situation. And I'm pleased as punch to bring in Nada Wadakar, who is an independent multimedia journalist. She's joining me, from, joining me from Nairobi. And most importantly, in June of this year, she received a Breakthrough Journalism Award from the Pulitzer Center. So Neha, thanks for joining me on the podcast and congrats on the award. Thank you so much, Phil. That's so kind of you. Let's start with the easy part, Neha. What in heaven's name drew you to Mozambique in the first place? That's a great question. Um, So I am based in Nairobi, Kenya. I work as an independent journalist. And Nairobi is a hub for reporters who are covering East Africa, parts of Central Africa, um, and a little bit of Southern Africa as well. And last year, um, when I started covering this, what had happened was there was a conflict in Ethiopia that had broken out. Um, It's been been in the news, obviously, um, tremendous violence. And this is a region that, this is a country that's right next to Kenya. And so many of the journalists who are in this region were rightly going up to Ethiopia to make sure that they covered the atrocities that were going on in that country. But at the same time- Ethnic conflict in Ethiopia, like Amaras versus Oromos and everything, right? Yes, it is. uh, In in the region, primarily in Tigray. Um, uh, Tigray, But of course, it's spilled out into other parts of the country as well. And, um, you know, with all of my colleagues or many of my colleagues covering that conflict, um, there was a, a much smaller and much less reported conflict going on in Cabo Delgado. And I saw that as an opportunity to make sure that that conflict was also getting some coverage in addition to what was going on in Ethiopia. So um, my first trip down there, I went and actually teamed up with the United Nations, which is a great way for reporters to get access to places that are very hard to get into um, at the time. The government was basically in a state of denial. They were saying that there really wasn't a problem. I don't know why everyone's so worried. Um, And the UN, of course, was doing everything it could to bring services and care to the people in Cabo Delgado who were being displaced uh, by this violence. And so I spent uh, a a bit of time with them up there, um, did a report for PBS NewsHour in the U.S. um, and a couple of other articles but, you know, of course, at that point, I was I was sort of very committed to making sure that this this conflict was not overlooked or ignored with all of the other news that was going on. I mean, last year we had the fall of Kabul, um, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. Ethiopia and a host of other um, conflicts that were were going on that were really taking the news coverage. So that was kind of my incentive or my reason to go down there and, and, and go down there multiple times. I ended up making three different trips. 
Well, good on you, uh, Neha, for bringing this conflict to our attention. As I said in the introduction, I think most people couldn't find Mozambique on a map. And certainly it doesn't get covered a lot in Western news. I, it's, in fact, I find it difficult to find information. I've got one Mozambican website that I visit that happens to be in English, but it is a, a, an underreported conflict. So, what, so when you got there, you're with the United Nations, you were there on the ground, you were talking to people, and I couldn't agree with you more. The government is still in denial about what's happening there in many ways. Um, they've done some things, but I don't think they're doing it entirely properly. What were your first impressions that you've garnered from your time on the ground, Neha? I think first, the most important thing to say is that this is an incredibly beautiful country. Um, Cabo Delgado in particular um, looks like a traveler's paradise. It's got these pristine beaches. Um, it's one of the longest coastlines in in Africa. Um, mm-hmm. It has beautiful, um, beautiful landscape, uh, rich in vegetation. Um, you know, they've got sort of Portuguese Afro nightclubs and, you know, incredible seafood. And the people are very, very warm and very welcoming. Um, and to be honest, that was my first impression. And, and I didn't know what to expect going in. And, um, you know, you hear all of these kind of rumors and stories uh, of, of what's going on and, and you expect it to be complete mayhem. But, you know, if you land in Maputo, you would have absolutely no idea that there's a conflict mm-hmm. going on in the north. Um Maputo is a far world away from 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 Pemba, which is the capital of Cabo right. Delgado province. Um, and it just seems like everything is is fine, you know, business as usual. Then once you get up to the north, you start to get a different sense. Um, Pemba, which is is again that capital city, is it's a it's a beach town essentially, but you start to notice the people who are there. Um, the hotel we were at was filled with um, aid workers. Uh, nuns and uh, and mercenaries, um, and and that was when we started to get a sense of of the the fact that this was really a bit of a wild west, um, a conflict that wasn't being covered, the government wasn't addressing properly, and so they had all of these different elements coming in to try to um, you know make some sort of impact, whether that be a kind of military style impact or whether it be a humanitarian impact, um, and it, it really felt kind of like a free for all. Now, you talked about mercenaries, Neha. If, if memory serves me correct, I know that the Wagner group, the Russian missionary, or mercenaries, sorry, that's a, a very Freudian slip. <laughs> um, the Wagner mercenaries, they're not missionaries at all, have been quite active in the Sahel area. I, I believe I saw, I've seen reporting that the Wagner group was also involved in Mozambique. Did you find that to be true? Yes, I, I've also heard that reporting. Now, by the time I got there, they had pulled out. And my understanding is that it was a failed mission, um, that they weren't able to achieve their goals. Um, you know, what I heard from some sources is that they were very quickly overwhelmed and, and they just weren't able to, um, make the impact that I think the government had brought them in there to, to make. And so what happened is that the Dick Advisory Group or DAG, um, which is a South Africa based group, um, they then came in and and those were the people that we were seeing on the ground every day. If memory serves me correct, I even read reports that perhaps some of the Wagner group had been beheaded by the jihadis in Cabo Delgado. So that leads me to my next question is, based on your time there, what is the nature of this conflict with a group that, as I said, they call themselves Al-Shabaab amongst other names. There has been some credible reporting that they may have links to what's called Islamic State Central uh, Central African Province or ISCAP, or is it, sorry, Islamic State East Africa Province, ISEAP. From the, your, based on your experiences there, uh, what did you garner from what this Islamist extremist movement, if you want to call it that, was actually doing up in the Northeast? 
Yeah, I think that's really the big question. Um, it is known locally as Al-Shabaab, which uh, in Arabic means the youth. But um, outside of that, the uh, U.S. government did classify it as its own separate um, terrorist entity, ISIS Mozambique. And essentially, these guys are, um, you know, somehow affiliated with ISIS, although the question of how strong those links and those ties yeah. are does, you know, remain, right. um, you know, to be seen. Uh, but what we were seeing, um, and the best way to describe it is what we were seeing in the displacement camps. Um, we were speaking with people who had experienced rape and sexual assault. We were speaking with people who had watched their homes being burned down. Um, I, my first article that I worked on, um, we interviewed a young girl. She was 10 years old. Her name was Maria Antuman. And she watched her mother and father being killed in front of her, being beheaded in front of wow. her. Um, her, her entire village was, and, and, um, you know, she, that was the experience that she had as a 10 year old child. She actually ran into the forest, um, got her leg trapped in an animal snare and was stuck there for hours until luckily somebody came by and rescued her and brought her down to Pemba, um, but, you know, this is a, a huge region and there are basically little villages scattered. Some are fishing villages, some are in the forest. Um, but, you know, these aren't big towns or cities by any means. And, and you know, the population is is quite sparse. And so these um, insurgents or, or militants are going from town to town. Um, the descriptions that we got from people were quite interesting. What many of them said, and this was echoed across uh, different groups at different camps that we went to, is that the attacks often looked like this. There would be a small group of people, so something like six men, who would come in often in the early hours of the morning or late at night. They would start shooting. They would set fire to the homes. And they would create some level of terror amongst the people who were living there by doing some of these horrific, violent acts. You know, they would behead people. They would kill people. But then for the rest of them, they just told them, all right, you you need to get out of here. We don't want you here. Um, oftentimes they would capture the young women um, and, and for, you know, for purposes of, of rape, sexual assault, or mm -hmm. even marriage. Um, right. And they would bring some of the older women with them to do chores around their, you know, their base, their, their base, which was somewhere in the forest. Um, so, you know, it's interesting because it's, it's more of a campaign of terror than kind of a mass slaughter in the sense that, you know, they weren't killing every single villager. Um, they were killing some to instill fear and the rest of them, they were essentially letting them go. And that brings up the question of then exactly what do they want? And I think that's mm -hmm. something that the government and the international community is, is still trying to figure out. Um, but of course we do have some, some theories on that. Right. Now this may be an un unfair question, Neha. I, I don't know if you have this kind of background, but most people would not associate that part of Africa, Southeastern Africa, uh, with Islamist terrorism. We don't normally think of Mozambique as a country with a, a Muslim minority or, or a percentage of the population. Do you have any idea why this group chose Mozambique to, I know that there are, it's, it is in proximity to other countries that have Muslim minorities as well. Do you have any idea as to why it arose in Mozambique in the first place? Um, yes, I do have some idea about that. So, um, you know, the the majority of Mozambicans are Christian, um, but they do have a Muslim population. And actually, a lot of that Muslim population is centered in the north of the country. Um, they live kind of close to the border with Tanzania, which, as, as you mentioned, is another country that does have um, a, mm -hmm. a Muslim population that is being radicalized. Um, and this is something that's that's quite well known. Um, right. And so what what experts are saying is, 
around 2008, um, there were people who started coming and, and visiting mosques in Pemba. And these are people from places like Kenya um, and Tanzania, but also they mentioned places like Saudi Arabia, Libya, Sudan, and Algeria. And these were fundamentalist clerics who used to come in and preach a very radicalized form of Islam that really people in this region had never heard before. Um, you know, up until this point, Muslims were the minority and many of them did feel disenfranchised um, or not included in government um, and, and, and not taken care of by the government. But it wasn't an, a radical form of Islam that people saw there. Um, up until this point. And, you know, these kinds of clerics coming in and preaching this radical form of Islam spoke to the issues that people were dealing with at the time. So they felt impoverished. Um, this, this part of the country has much lower health and education indicators than other parts of the country. There's less, there's fewer jobs in this part of the country. Um, and so you have a population that's feeling like their backs are against the wall um, and they don't have what they need and their pleas or their attempts to reach out to the central government in Maputo were falling on deaf ears. And, you know, as, as we both know, that's the perfect scenario for uh, extremism to creep in because you've got a, a population that's young, angry, disenfranchised, and they don't have anywhere else to turn. And so they turn to this ideology that's telling them, look, be part of our, be a part of our mm -hmm. club. And, you know, we'll be able to advocate for you and speak for you. And, and I think that's what seemed to be appealing to some of the people who started going over into this very radical form of Islam. You've raised uh, two great points there, Neha. I mean, first of all, is the sense of grievance. And when the, I know from my experience in the security service that these groups do, in fact, they thrive on grievance. They'll use what's happening in the world as proof that either the West is, is against Islam or Islam means defending it will defend it for you. And secondly, is the presence of preachers from abroad. You mentioned Saudi Arabia in particular, and we know that the Saudis have been doing this for the better part of four decades where Saudi Islam is a very conservative Islam. It's not the kind of Islam you see in many parts of the world. And there's a fringe of Saudi conservative Islam that's actually jihadist in nature. So can't say I'm all that surprised on what, what you found around the ground. Uh, let's move on, Neha, to, to what the government's done about this. Now, I believe that there has also been a multinational force that's been formed. I believe troops from Rwanda are part of it. And some other, I think Ugandan forces have also been in Mozambique. You mentioned at first that you know, if you're in Maputo, you don't really get a sense of what's happening in Gabo Delgado. You talked also about a sense of denial. And I've seen estimates that there's hundreds of thousands of people in, in IDPs, internally displaced persons in camps. So how has the, the Mozambican government dealt with this situation? Are they, are they, are they, do they understand it? Do they accept it? Are they, are they doing anything to help mitigate the circumstances? Or are they just basically uh, more or less useless in this regard? <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's that's a good question. Um, I think this kind of speaks to one of the wider issues that that I, I did want to bring in as well, which is resources. Um, this is a region of the country that is abundantly rich in natural resources. They have gold, they have rubies, they have timber, they have uh, natural uh, gas. Offshore gas. Um, yeah. Exactly, exactly. One of the biggest reserves um, off of Africa. And mm -hmm. so now you've got this region that is not only disenfranchised by the government, but also is sitting on an, a literal gold mine. Um, and, mm -hmm. and that kind of changes the scenario a little bit in this sense. So, you know, as we said, when, when this first started happening, um, the Mozambican government pretty much denied that it was going on. And, you know, there are some very uh, profitable projects going on in this region. Total, obviously, Total, is yeah. yep, the most well-known. Um, 
as, as having a $20 billion natural gas project off the coast of Mozambique. There's also Gemfields, which is one of the biggest um, gem companies in the world uh, that is a British company. They also are tapping into the Mozambique and Ruby mines in partnership with a local company. Um, and you've got the Chinese who are um, cutting down timber in, in the north of the country, some of it legally, some of it illegally. Um, and a large majority of Mozambican timber is being shipped to China. So you've got these huge entities that are operating in this space. Um, and so, you know, and this is speculation here on my part, but this makes sense, right? That the government would not want these projects to be put in jeopardy um, by saying, yes, we actually have a huge issue with an, an Islamic insurgency in this region, right? That would be something to give investors or companies pause. And so for the first few years, there was complete denial. Once this started to become a problem that couldn't be denied, and as you said, hundreds of thousands of IDPs is something that you can't really hide for that long. That's when the government started to try these, what I would call stopgap measures, right? Bringing in the Wagner Group, bringing in Dick Advisory Group, to try to deal with this in in a in a military way, but not with their own military. Um, and and you know there were Mozambican troops who were up there um, trying to combat this, but they were vastly underfunded and undertrained. They didn't know how to deal with this level of violence. Um, and you know once that once there was international scrutiny on a high level, that's when the international forces came in. And although there have been a lot of press releases and a lot of emails that I've gotten saying you know this is a great success. Um, you mentioned speaking to Jasmine. I follow Jasmine very closely on Twitter as well. Uh -huh. I mean, there are constant reports of yes. the insurgency continuing and in fact spreading to areas where it wasn't before. It's moved further south than it's ever been seen um, in recent mm -hmm. in recent weeks. It's moved closer to cities like Monte Puege, which is the heart of the ruby mining area. Um, and, you know, Total, as we know, was was forced to declare force majeure on their project and actually yes, halt that's operations. Right. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, you've got a, a government that probably tried to downplay this so that they wouldn't lose these projects. And now they're losing the projects because they weren't able to get the situation in hand. So essentially, I would say they have been very ineffective in, in dealing with this with this crisis. I'm, I'm glad you, you also raised Jasmine. As I said, she's on my podcast in November of 2020, and I follow her as well on Twitter. And I, I must say on, on a daily basis, she's tweeting something out about some actions being taken in the north, and you're absolutely right. Uh, for but we've seen this elsewhere. Nay, governments are either in denial or they claim to have had success. I and mean, the Nigerian government every year at Christmas time, without fail, declares a Boko Haram and ice swap are dead. And every every year, ice swap and Boko Haram say no, we're not. Neha, I, I know you haven't been there since October of last year, and and now you're you're back in Nairobi. But based, you're still following it, obviously. Um, is there a happy ending to this story or not? Or is that even a fair question to ask? No, I, I think that's an important question to ask. And, and sadly, my answer to that is no. Um, I'll, I'll put that into a more human perspective. Um, when I was in the camps um, interviewing people who were displaced, one of the biggest questions that, or one of the biggest things that I heard um, so often repeated by so many different people that I interviewed was, we don't care about the gold. We don't care about the gas. We just want to go home. These are families who have been living in this region on this land for generations. Um, this is their ancestral home. Um, they have their farms there. They fish there. Um, you know, this is this is this is their place, right? Um, and and it's being completely destroyed not only by the jihadists but also by these foreign multinationals who are coming in and basically extracting everything they can from this beautiful place 
and then, you know, not really protecting it in return. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, when you, when you talk to those people and when you see them look at you and say, is there anything you can do to help us go home? First, of course, as a journalist, there, there is nothing I can really do to help them. And that's difficult in itself, but you know, when they say, do you know if we'll ever be able to go home? I mean, if we look at how this has happened around the rest of the world in so many places, mm-hmm. especially resource rich places, yes, it's very unlikely that they will ever be able to go home. And mm-hmm. um, how long is this going to take to get under control? Once you open a can of worms and you have um, jihadis in a certain region, I mean, this becomes essentially guerrilla warfare, right? And we've seen how hard it is to put that back in the box. It, it is you know, these small, tiny groups of people, six men, you know, at a time who are well-armed, um, who are targeting these little villages, it's really hard to extinguish that. Um, and so how is it that the government's going to be able to say, this place isn't completely safe and we're going to send you back to your land. You can go home now. The government has already started creating permanent resettlement areas. I mean, that in itself speaks to their, you know, idea that 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 this is not a short-term situation right they can't have that's, that's an admission of failure in a, in a sense right and it's it an is, admission that things is. are not going to get better exactly it wow. is um and you know it, it could be looked at from a humanitarian perspective you know they don't want people living in camps but <laughs> there's a very small minority of people who are actually settling in these resettlement areas and i actually visited one um and these are fishermen who are being moved a hundred kilometers inland. Um, you know, these wow. are people, you know, they're not really considering the situation or the context of the people that they're moving. They're basically just giving them a bunch of, of logs and saying, build your own houses. I mean, they're not even setting wow. up houses. I, I watched people who are, are, um, IDPs carrying these huge, um, you know, sticks and, and, and logs on their backs, um, with a bunch of nails and screws in their hand. And, and, you know, they've been dropped into, you know, in, in American terms in a hundred degree heat. Um, and, and they basically have to start again and, and they have no idea what they're going to do, where they're going to make money. Um, you know, if you make money through fishing, you don't know how to farm. And, um, and, and, you know, all of this, I think speaks to the fact that this is not going to be a short-term conflict. This is going to continue. Um, and, and it is, it is very unlikely that many of the people and and many of the children that I interviewed are ever going to have the chance to see their home again. And and it's, Mm -hmm. it's a tragedy. Not, not to mention, I guess, the lack of schooling, lack of anything else. You know, Neha, that was a very depressing answer, but I fear it's a very realistic answer to my yeah. question. So I, I appreciate your candor in that way. Um, last thing, Neha, so what's next for you? So you're you're back in Kenya. You're obviously still following what's happening in Mozambique. Any projects on the go that might get, garner you another Pulitzer Prize? Oh, gosh. Um, well, well, I'm um, working right now on – we have Kenyan elections coming up in August, and that mm-hmm. always um, – is, is an interesting and busy time of year for those of us who are reporting here. Um, and, and so I'm going to be covering that. That's going to be on August 9th. Um, and, and hopefully they will be peaceful and there will be a democratic transfer of, pros, uh, um, transfer of power, excuse me. Um, but, but that remains to be seen. Um, and I'm also looking to do more stories about climate change off the coast of East Africa. So I'm looking at Madagascar as a place I'd like to go. And then my colleague, um, Ed Ram, who was the videographer and photographer who worked with me in Mozambique, um, we have been talking about trying to cover that from a a different angle. Um, And so continuing to make sure that we keep that in the news. So those are all all things that are on the horizon for for me and, and of course, for Ed, who's a a brilliant journalist. and, And I hope you get to look up some of his work as well. 
Well, certainly. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot on your plate. And uh, kudos to you again for bringing this issue to the attention of those of us in the West. As I said, most people don't know a lot about Mozambique. And, and this has been a fascinating, um, difficult conversation to have, Neha. But I do think you've reflected the situation on the ground very, very well. And I just want to thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah. And, and thank you so much for having me. It, it means a lot that there are people who are, are trying to get this story out to a wider audience. So thank you as well and, and for what you do. My pleasure. I'll certainly put it on all my social media. So that was my conversation with Neha Watakar, who is an independent journalist in Nairobi and a winner of a Pulitzer Breakthrough Prize for her reporting in Mozambique. What do you think of our conversation? What do you think of uh, the reporting that journalists do at the, at the sort of at the coalface of conflict zones around the world? Love to get your feedback. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com. Also on Twitter at borealisaves. You'll find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like the content want to get more, go to the website, borealisthreatenedrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button. Get all the podcasts and all the blogs for free. Also a link to my latest book, The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation to the Present. Self-published, you can get a copy off my website. Love to hear your feedback. We'll talk again soon. Until then, take care.